he's an Iraqi. He gets to places in the ministry that we never could get in. Individuals like the Sergeant Major were very, very valuable to us. Moody gave us information that, if utilized correctly, could change the ultimate outcome of the Iraq war. Even walking by a room, he could hear conversations, and I validated this over my year, where he'd hear the real conversation going on, and he'd give us that information. Individuals in whom we could have enormous trust and confidence, uh, individuals with whom we could communicate effectively. Uh, you know, his English language skills were, were quite good from early on. Uh, that's helpful. Uh, in any case, it's helpful. It's also helpful if he's going to be someone who's on the lookout for potential threats to, to our soldiers. Without Hamidi, I'm about 99% certain we would not have survived our tour. He was very descriptive about things. He would give us detailed, uh, in-depth information and frankly would go out of his way uh, to do things that we never asked him to do, nor would we have probably ever asked him to do in order to get information, photographs, names, documents, whatever that may be, to pass to us, which we probably would have never asked him to do some of those things, but it certainly enhanced his credibility with us. There are blood debts between us. I would not be here today if it weren't for him. That's a fact. I'd be buried somewhere. GlobalRecon.net, giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We have an incredible episode for you guys today. Uh, this episode was co-hosted by my friend Chantel Taylor. We had a very special guest on. Uh, his name is Hamidi Yassim, and uh, he was the youngest command sergeant major in Iraqi military history. He done a lot of incredible work uh, during the worst times in Iraq, during the Iraq war. And he assisted U.S. intelligence services with, uh, you know, capturing and identifying people. And he did a really great job. And he's, you know, incredibly patriotic and, and cares about his, his country, his native country. And now, uh, as he is a, a U.S. citizen, obviously this country. So... Before we get into the uh, conversation with the Command Sergeant Major, uh, I just am happy to announce that the Global Recon Articles uh, section is back up and running, and we have an incredible group of veteran writers uh, from all different backgrounds. We have uh, Army Green Berets, Navy EOD technicians, uh, Navy search and rescue swimmers, former NCIS people and um just to name a few uh marine corps veterans uh and then we'll have articles written by some of my friends overseas and the first article which went up last night is written by uh former australian sas major dr dan pronk and it's a very good article it's getting incredible feedback a lot of people are reading it uh, i encourage you guys to check it out so Check out www.globalrecon.net slash articles. It'll be weekly. Uh, if you sign up for the mailing list, we'll 
send you weekly updates on what we got going on. We're working on getting some good products out for you guys and uh, programs as well related to special operations uh, selection and getting into shape for that. For the products that are going to be coming out, we're going to be collaborating with a lot of uh, soft veterans, special operations veterans from uh, different backgrounds. And uh, I'm excited to be able to bring you guys some good content as well as uh, good products. So with that being said, now I will play the conversation that I had with Chantel Taylor and Hamidi Jassim. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Hendricks. I'm joined this week by my good friend, Chantel Taylor, our British Army combat medic. Then with us, we have a special guest on. His name is Hamidi Jassim. Hamidi, what's up, brother? Hey, guys. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. Chantel, are you there? Yeah, I'm good. All right, cool. So, um... Hamity, we'll, we'll talk about some of your background uh, in case some of the audience is not familiar. Uh, you are born in Iraq, uh, born and raised, I believe. Correct. And uh, That's you, right. you served in the Iraqi army uh, for a number of years during the height of the Iraq war. Can we talk about what, what your your rank was and, and some of that? And then we'll talk about um, how you started and uh, eventually how you ended up working with the Americans? Yeah, um, so I was uh, born and raised in Baghdad, Iraq. You know, I grew up in a very um, awesome Baghdad. is called Al-Ghazalia, which is, was about 15 minutes from the capital. And, you know, as a child, um, Iraq is, is nothing compared like America, you know, specifically Growing up under Saddam Hussein, uh, this was probably one of the difficult times of my life and probably the reason it shaped me the way it shaped me in life later on. Um, growing up under Saddam was not really easy, um, specifically if your uh, family was not uh, a friendly of the government or of supporting of the government. As you know, at the time, uh, Saddam was a dictator, and if you open your mouth or express your opinion, you'll be immediately executed or killed. So I came from the background of a family that was not at the same page of Saddam Hussein and were already blacklisted and being watched by his intelligence agencies. And it was really difficult um, growing up in Iraq because you have the Ba'ath Party, which is Saddam's political party, who is in charge of everything. Literally, um, they're even in charge of the air that you're breathing. And it was really tough. I had a very difficult time as a child, you know, dealing with bullying every day, dealing with uh, um, children my age with high influence and high power because their parents or their families are members of the Ba'ath Party or the Iraqi Republican Guards. Um, it was really tough. Um, you couldn't express your opinion. You couldn't uh, open your mouth or say what you have to say. And at some point, you couldn't defend yourself because if you do, um, you hit the wrong person. You can end up in a very uh, terrible place, and you could you could get killed in a way. So life was tough, you know. Growing up, and you know, all I wanted to do is just live my life and be able to do what I wanted. And I found myself in a situation where I couldn't do anything, where I had to keep my voice quiet all the time. And um, I found myself in a situations where I was getting hit by certain people, but I can't fight back because if I do. Um, fight back, I can give my family and myself in a huge trouble. And, you know, fast forward through that, 
and you know, I, I, as at 12 years old, I was walking out of middle school one day, and this was a common practice by the Ba'ath Party and its allies, you know, during Saddam's regime. I was walking out, and all of a sudden, I see um, a police officer with with uh, two guards in a, in a car pulling uh, next to me. And it was a common practice. That, I mean, you could you could see a Ba'ath Party member from a mile and know this is a Ba'ath Party member. And the reason why. Because you see the way they dress, the way they sound, the way they talk. Um, I immediately knew this guy was a high influence. And um, he asked me if I have any money in my pocket. And it was a common practice that they would stop you. They will take the money in your pocket if you have any cash. And at that time, I had about 500 Iraqi dinars. I would keep 250 of it in my uh, socks and 250 in my wallet. I knew something like this would happen all the time. So I was was protective of what I was the money that I was collecting in my pocket for months, and um, I was trying to buy a shoes at the time as a child. Uh, it was really expensive. My family couldn't afford um, to buy me a shoe, so I was collecting money over like six months, trying to come up with the right price to buy the right shoes. And when he pulled me over, he asked me if I have any cigarettes. Do I smoke? Uh, it was a common thing that um, ch- children and teenagers at the time were smoking and. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't one of these children at the time. I didn't smoke. I didn't have any cigarettes, but I had the money. So I told him I didn't have anything. And when he, um, realized he said, well, if I get out and search you and find money, um, it's not going to be a good day for you. So I stopped and he searched me and he found 250 uh, dinars in my wallet. Um, I just wanted to take my money back at the time. I didn't want to lose my money. Um, I didn't know why he was just robbing me and taking my money. So I, I just decided to fight back. And when I started talking back and forth with him, he slapped me. And he was like, I was a 12-year-old and he was like a six foot tall at the time. And he slapped me in the ground. When he did that, I lost control of myself. I cursed him back. And when I did that, in our culture, this was a big deal. If you curse someone's bag and it's uh, it offends their honor or whatever. And... The next thing I know is I was grabbed by him and thrown in the back of the car with the two guards where he had the two guards. And I can see from the tone he used that he was much more powerful than his guards. And I still remember on the way to uh, prison, the two guards, one of the guards offered him, said, he's just a kid. You took his money. Why don't you just kick him and let him go? Um, And he told them that if they kept talking, um, he will throw them in prison as well, where I'm getting thrown that night. I didn't know what happened to me that day, but I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I thought this was going to be the end of life for me. Um, I went there and I was entered in a prison in the inside of the Iraqi Ministry of Interior. And I was given a pen and to sign on a paper. And I signed. I took the pen and I signed. And when I signed, I looked at that paper stating that I was an anti-government and I attacked um, a police patrol on the street. So I was considered like a revolutionary fighter that was... Uh, trying to attack a police patrol. Uh, all I had in my hands were four books, and that's all I had. I couldn't even afford uh, a backpack. Um, I had a four books that were wrapped together, and when I signed, I was thrown immediately with a bunch of adults in a prison. At a 12 years old at the time, um, you know, life was pretty much it for me. Um, I thought this is, was going to be the end. Um, got tortured, got hit, got slapped around. And for a crime that I didn't even know what it was, um, I didn't know what I did wrong, and 
All I wanted to do is just keep my money. And I ended up spending the other 250 dinars uh, I had on my socks to get some corrupted uh, guard in the in the prison to give a, a call to my family to let them know where I was. And uh, I ended up losing all my money that night and almost my life. And I stayed in there for about three weeks until my family found out where I was and they had to pay a ransom to the director of that prison in order for me not to face a judge or almost face whatever life prison or whatever they could they would consider at the time. And um, I didn't know what my destiny was, but my family paid the cash and I ended up leaving there after three weeks of beating and um, mental exhaustion. And at the time, you know, imagine yourself at age 12, being in that situation is just, you give hope in life. And at the time I just said, what kind of future am I looking at under this regime? And what's going to happen? Even if I passed high school or went to college, what would be the point? What would be the point of me um, trying to move on every day or live as just, just like a slave every single day? Um, fast forward is I never dated anything until the American soldiers arrived in Iraq in 2003. Um, I opened my front home, my front door, and I saw an American soldier standing there. And this was the biggest turning point in my life because um, people in my neighborhood were very afraid to uh, get any close to the Americans. People were very afraid that um, this could be just like 1991, the first Gulf War, where the Americans will turn around and leave and Saddam come back after everyone, uh, come back and try to kill everyone that spoke to the Americans or dealt with them. Um, my first question was, I asked the American soldier what his name was. He said, my name was Brad. I asked him where he was from and he said, I'm from Texas. And at the time I looked at my family and I said, you know, this guy has a very thick accent at the time it was like a texan accent and i looked at my family members and i said you know what we've been learning the wrong english all our lives because this guy totally speaks another language <laughs> and i started talking to him and i asked him i said brad are you guys staying this time and he didn't know what i meant i said are you guys staying not leaving he said no no we are staying and once he assured me that we were staying i mean this was probably the happiest moment of my life because i left i looked left and right and trying to see what happened in my neighborhood and all these backboardy members, high officials in Saddam's government, people that I couldn't even look at before just disappeared like the dust. Their homes were there, but they were never there. And this was just an interesting turning point. And I asked Brad and I said, uh, is there anything I can do for you today? He said, I haven't smoked in days. I went and grabbed all the cigarettes my dad has in his own and gave it to Brad. And I took a walk with him, and this was a big deal for me. This was like, it meant I was going to get educated. I was going to have a life, in a way. And that meant that I was not going to get bullied anymore. I'm not going to get hit or slapped around by someone that I can't touch. Um, this was an opportunity for me to have an equal fight against, um, against somebody that you couldn't touch before. And it, it changed my life, and it, it really gave me a positive signs that day. And after a couple of days, the U.S. military were establishing the new Iraqi military after they let go of the old army. And they were looking to establish a new Iraqi military and uh, they were looking to get new faces involved. And I ran into that. I mean, I ran. I literally ran into that recruiting station. 
at the time, not many Iraqis wanted to join the Iraqi army. And the reason why, because people served mandatory military during Saddam time. People were just not a big fan of the military anymore. To me, that was the opposite. I wanted nothing but um, be able to fight these guys face to face in a battle. So, to me, pretty much that this was the opportunity. I ran into that recording station, and um, when I got there, there was an American uh, civilian who was in charge of the processing for the mob station to get you in. And I was only 17 years old. I was not 18 years old yet. So they were only taking 18 years old and above. They were not looking at anybody younger than 18. And when I got there, there was probably about four people. That was it in the line. And when my turn came in to get it through that door, there was just this door. Once you get through that door, you go to your medical check and processing. Um, I was told that I can't join the Iraqi military because you're only 17 and they're only taking 18 and above. I didn't know what to do that day. I ran back home. I ran back home immediately and there was a guy in my neighborhood that faked IDs. And he changed my ID and he uh, updated my date of birth to a year um, ahead. And I ran back again the same day. I changed my clothes and I was hoping that this guy would be gone and be someone else. And I'll just get through. And my luck was the same exact American guy standing in that checkpoint. And once he looked at my ID, there wasn't many Iraqis there to not to forget about me to begin with. So he looked at my ID and he laughed and he said, I thought you were 17 two hours ago. I said, we had a birthday. And I looked at him and I said, I just I just wanted to get in at the time. He asked me, he said, I'll cut you a deal. Uh, run home, get one of your parents to sign this application and I'll let you in. I ran home immediately, got one of my parents to come with me got that obligation signed and went through that door. And to me, going through that door was like a dream come true. I did go through that door that day. Um, I was immediately shipped um, to go for a training base to be trained by uh, former Vietnam veterans from the United States and the British military uh, NCOs um, that was in charge of the training. Once I got shipped, I was uh, probably like soldier number 19. Uh, that joined the Iraqi military in 2003. Um, I got there and there wasn't many of us. There was probably about 100 members that went through there. We were sent to the northern of Iraq to be trained by um, th these companies and the individuals from the British military. And we spent about good proper three months of basic training, probably one of the only Iraqi divisions that had the proper training in the Iraqi military to this day. Um, we went through there. And from there, I was chosen to um, to be sent to what's called an NCO school. I was probably the youngest uh, sergeant that was in the Iraqi military at the time. Um, and it was just a big deal for me at the time. And the second shipment that was supposed to become another 100 members, uh, a few hundred members of the Iraqi military to join us, did not make it at the recording station. They actually got blown up by a car bomb. Oh, and wow. many... And new recruits got discouraged from joining. And the Iraqi military was literally stuck with these 150 members in 2003. And other than these 150 members in the ICDC, the Iraqi National Guard, there were here and there in every town. And that was that's all Iraq had at the time. And people got discouraged because hundreds of people died from that car bombs. And people were discouraged. And the one thing about terrorists in Iraq at the time, it was 
members of the Ba'ath Party joining Al-Qaeda. All of a sudden, you have all these terrorist groups getting reactivated. Their biggest fear was to face native Iraqis in a battle that knows a lot about them than the Americans do. And this was a big deal for them. They were afraid of facing that because to people like myself, I can smell a Ba'ath Party member from a mile away. I can just tell by the way they act, by the way they're dressed, where they're from, their age. It's just not that hard to tell who they really are. Uh, we have dealt with them for many years. And yes, yeah, so from what you were saying there, basically it was just to point out that how important when um, any type of force um, goes into a country or a region is it, how important it is to have members of the, of the local populace to, to help with different things because nobody really knows their fellow countrymen like the people that live there. And the, the way that you pointed that out, it, it makes sense because, you know, the, the characteristics, the mannerisms, you know, between di even different areas and different, uh, the different dialogues spoken, it's very easy for you guys to ping people, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, you know, especially some of the faces were very familiar in the age. And, um, you know, there was a lot of information about these guys. And um, at the time we had laws of members of the former Republican Guards who were not allowed to be part of the government. There was many of people that, you know, an ally to Saddam and have done horrible crimes against the Iraqis. To us, this was a big deal. And it doesn't take us that long to know. And, you know, at the time, you know, Terrorist organizations were not really sure about the American intentions. They were not sure if the Americans have an idea who they really are or not. But once they realized the Americans actually have no idea who these people are, they took advantage of that. And that's when they really peaked out. And that's when they really peaked in attacking U.S. military soldiers in Iraq because they have this idea in their head that America has all this information. Um, America has all this magical power and so much intelligence to know everything about everybody. But once they really start realizing this was not a true statement, they started hitting back really hard. And they realized this was the time for them to attack. And after that, for me, I was sent to, I was sent to uh, Baghdad. I was sent on a few missions with the first Iraqi divisions. And after that, I was sent to Baghdad to the Mathana Airport, which is near Haifa Street. And my job was to protect the Iraqi recruiting center and patrols Haifa Street every single day. And in one day, I was sent on a mission off in, to pick up a dead bodies of a, about 25 Iraqi new recruits that was not even in uniform. They just attempt to apply to fill an application to join the Iraqi military. They were the terrorists were coordinating with the Iraqi public transportation driver who would pick people up from right in front of the recording center. And he had taken them inside of Haifa Street the wrong way. And they were all executed and shot and thrown under the bridge in Haifa Street. My job was to go retrieve these bodies and to take them to the Iraqi hospital, put them on the morgue, to hand them so their families can come pick them up. So I took about 30 of my soldiers and my platoon uh, commander at the time, he was a lieutenant. Um, from Mosul, and it was just an everyday mission. We had pickup trucks to put the bodies on, and we did not realize that day we had an ambush. Their point was to capture Iraqi soldiers in uniform so they can behead them on camera, and that was going to scare the whole country from joining any Iraqi military at the time.
So me and my 30 soldiers, my lieutenant, we were going to be the guys that would have to be captured alive. So I went there that day and it drove into the high first street. And then one sign that really scared me going into it. Hyper Street is a very busy place every single day, traffic. And we drove through that day in 2004 on July 27th. And there was no sign of any cars in the middle of Hyper Street. It looked like a ghost town. There was not many cars. Um, it just looked quiet. And to, and, and to put it into perspective for, for listeners as well, if they don't know Hyper Street, if you can explain further. I mean, I, we spoke about it earlier. But it, yeah, it's, 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 one is, of those pla- it's one of those places that, there aren't many exits. You know, there are there are a lot of places yeah. you could be cut off. And if you're caught down that street or even, you know, coming over portions of the Iron Bridge, you know, that it's a serious, it's a serious place, isn't it? Exactly. And it's actually in 2004, this is probably one of the most dangerous two miles in the world. Yeah, for sure. To, to be on High First Road. I mean, the resistance was crazy because here you have Syrian refugees who were members of the Ba'ath Party and allied to Saddam's. And next to it was the housing barracks for Saddam's special intelligence and special guards. So you're in an area full of Saddam allies and, 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 and nothing but terrorists and Saddam allies. So yeah. going there every day... And you also count. have the Ministry of Health, which, which has exactly. all the files on every single person that's ever been through there. Exactly. So it it was just a dangerous place to go there to begin with. And when we drove there all the way down to the end of the bridge, we have one end of the bridge and they have left the bodies right under the bridge. And we immediately, once we saw the bodies at the location they were, we knew that was not it. We figured either they have left bombs at the bodies and they were going to blow us up or there was something else going on. And immediately I have looked at my camera that day and I said, you know, something looks fishy and something doesn't look right about this and we just decided like you know let's just pick these bodies put them in the pickup truck and leave and get out of here as soon as possible worst case we had a qrf a quick reaction force if something happened we will have another 30 soldiers down to support us but that didn't go well for us they started a firefight they were hiding in an old area that surrounds by the bridge right behind us so once they started the firefight we found ourselves stuck behind the bridge barriers, facing them, and the river is right behind us. And I don't know if, as you remember, there was a lot of high buildings facing them. They have a place to sniper up in that building in case of anybody that gets away from the bridge barriers to get shot and killed. I remember there was a a building on the right side that had... That looked like it lent itself to positions, you know, and that from from sort of what we'd spoken about in our our own drills. That's a, that's that exactly the building where yes. they have sniper, and and you and can see it, you know, it's, it's just exactly. it's, all, it's almost you, you like can um, see it right there. And there was this old Iraqi uh, town, which is called the, the Golden. Um, they call it Mahalat of Dhab in Arabic, and it's it's called the um, the it's called like the Golden city or um that's with the translation of it and it's yeah. an old iraqi town that has a very old homes and they were hiding all in there and they have put us in such a situation where we either we either face them or the river is behind us and we find ourselves that almost about 
60% of that platoon was behind the barriers. They immediately hit the trucks with our gunners in it, with RPGs. So we lost our first 10 soldiers immediately within the first two minutes of the fight. And we found ourselves right stuck behind the bridge barriers. Long story short, we were there for about an hour and 45 minutes. Our QRF in Iraqi Methana Airport have immediately left the Iraqi uh, base to come support us. But they had IDs that were planted in Haifa Street. And they were hit immediately as soon as they entered Haifa Street to come support us. So we were stuck there. And the point was it to capture Iraqi soldiers in uniform. Um, most of us were there, ran out of ammo. The American military could not come to help us on the ground until these IDs were either taken off. But the American uh, 1st Cavalry Unit, who was in charge at the time, immediately figured out if they have came to us, they will be stuck with the IDs or they will get hurt. So they had to cross the river from the other side of the bridge to come to us from the other side of the bridge to show us backup. And it took them about an hour with the, with the traffic that was happening in Baghdad, an hour and about an hour until they got to us. At that time, we had only about nine soldiers left. I uh, myself was um, shot in the knee and um, had a shrapnel hit above my eye, my right eye. Yeah. And uh, we were pretty much in in a tough position at the time, a very tough position. And um, couldn't really, um, couldn't really, you know, that day will probably be the worst day of my life in, in a way because you know, losing my guys, you know, I, I slept next to these guys. I ate with them. I, I did everything with them. And losing one of my um, closest friends over there, um, who was a young sergeant as well, um, he got shot by that, uh, by that sniper who was in the building trying to recover, yeah. um, trying to recover an injured Iraqi soldier who was there at the time. And uh, it was just difficult. It was really... Um, uh, it was rough. It wasn't easy. And when I walked out of that place, when the American military has gone in there and they had an Apache helicopter that entered the fight, um, until they got there, we were in a very tough shape. Um, I realized that my platoon commander, who was a lieutenant, was captured alive and he ran out of ammo and he was captured alive in the other side of the bridge. And um, as as I was leaving in the ambulance, um, I saw the body of my lieutenant in the intersection that's going into the bridge, and um, with no head, he was beheaded. Oh wow! And um, it was just a moment where you didn't know what's next for you to go home. Um, what are you gonna do? What was your next option? Uh, the Iraqi military was defeated um, tremendously that day. Our QRF was highly injured. Um, we didn't know at the time how many soldiers were dead. Um, I started counting bodies and started counting who was missing. When I got to the hospital, I was released about uh, three hours later, and I went to back to the base to realize that about half of that unit has actually quit their jobs, have resigned from the Iraqi military. People who had families and children didn't want to be part of the Iraqi military anymore. Um, people got scared. People thought this was going to be an impossible fight. Um, People were afraid, and you couldn't blame them. To me, I did not want to go back to my neighborhood. 
I didn't want to just go back and be like a slave again to these individuals. And if I couldn't beat them in the battle, I'm going to have to get out and try again and again until they get rid of me. Um, I stayed in the base. So the second day, the Iraqi Minister of Defense, Hazem Shalon at the time, have called in for all the Iraqi soldiers who were injured in the battle and have rewarded everybody with the battle for promotion. Um, I was rewarded from a platoon sergeant to a command sergeant major in the Iraqi military. Um, our sergeant major had uh, quit his job and left to go home out of the base. And how old so were you? I was only 19 years old Wow. at the time. Um, putting that rank on, um, people usually about three years to 25 years older than me, uh, putting that rank on. Um, but that rank on, it doesn't mean you're going to be in the back doing training like any sergeant majors that would do in the U.S. military or um, just it's a different mentality. Uh, we have a different system. It meant you're, you're going to be in the front lines most of the times and while the commanders are going to be in the back. And I t- received that the day after. Uh, I was in shock myself. I had to bury my uh, teammates and my uh, friend um, who is his wife was just a pregnant three months with his baby and had to hand his body to them and walk away. Um, it was a difficult time and I just um, moved on. It was just another day in Iraq. And this is how it was for us. Uh, within a couple months, I was uh, contacted by my commander and I was sent to be the Iraqi sergeant major for the Iraqi MOD, uh, which was a very vital location at the time. Uh, the Iraqi and the American military were establishing the Iraqi leadership of the Iraqi military at the time. And the MOD was located next to the green zone, not specifically in the green zone. Yeah, so, I know the MOD. I know the MOD build. I know those buildings well. And just, to, so just to, um, whilst you're talking about that, did you find that, um, and this is just from my um, perspective of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, is that the, the general... The general rule of how an army works, or even the rank structure, those sorts, that sort of fighting, is, is kind of changed things for people because we we lost a, a fair few um, infantry sergeant majors because the the role of their role kind of changed, and they they were very much leading from the front, you know, out, out at the front with their blokes. And I think and, maybe when when fighting an insurgency, it's it's almost like we've all had to rethink. The way yeah, I mean, the Iraqi things, military you know? at the time, as you know, the Iraqi military follows the British system. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's always where the soldiers at the front and the commanders. Are yeah, the and back. it was always it was for conventional warfare, and, and we were very we we're very much the same. And then all of a sudden, exactly. we were faced and, with these insurgencies, and and exactly. it's kind of changed um, the way we do things. You know, I'd I'd like to think forever because you need to be able to. Those sorts of front lines that we faced um, in the Great Wars, yeah. you know, we we all hope that never happens again. But things do change when um, we're, we're fighting a, a different enemy. So absolutely, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's especially how... you, especially you're fighting an enemy that's a it's a it's a very different warfare. It's a, you're fighting an enemy that's a very close distance. You are going yeah. to enemy's territory. Uh, this was not a, an official battle. Um, so after that moment. I went into the MOD and I was briefed by um, a group of American military advisors that I was going to be in charge. And the reason I was picked up to go there because I spoke English at the time. I was a pro-American. I was someone that was trained by the Americans, brought up by the Americans, did not have any old Iraqi army ties. So 
it just happened to be I was the perfect candidate to control that area. And the reason why the Americans have brought me to that building, because there was going to be 50 American advisors who will be crossing from the green zone every single day to the MOD to be in charge and part of the Iraqi uh, military system, which is each advisor is in charge of uh, department inside of the Iraqi Ministry of Defense. My job was to make sure that these individuals leave the MOD really um, in a safe way back to the green zone and make sure the Iraqis who are working there as an employees inside of the MOD to uh, leave it through the other gate, which is the red zone. And when I took a walk the first time through that building, I was very shocked to see that there was a lots of the old Iraqi generals from Saddam time were actually back in our military. And it really shocked me because when I looked at these American advisors at the time who wanted me to be there and I said, do you guys really have any idea who this person is? They said, no, he just wanted to be part of the Iraqi military and we let him back in. And a couple of these generals were actually involved in the mass killing of the Iraqis in the south of Iraq. A couple of these guys were um, the killing tools Saddam have used against the Iraqis. Uh, of course, you know, Saddam was not killing every single Iraqi with his hand, but he was using individuals who were working for him. And some of these members were members of the Iraqi Republican Guard and the, the old Iraqi intelligence. They should not have been in these buildings, but some have came back with the different names. Some of their names were not really clear to the Americans. Um, the Americans at the time did not have any database. Uh, they had a few names, but they really didn't have a lot of the names um, that was involved in these. To, to, to me as an Iraqi, this was like a, a scary mission because here I come from Haifa Street, which was a bloody battle, and to go into the Iraqi MOD, and, which is wanted me to protect the MOD from the enemy in the outside while the enemy is already inside of it. Do you, do you see what I'm coming from? Yeah. So uh, it was looking at myself and the soldiers that I had at the time, and I said, you know, there was no way I could protect these Americans, but the enemy is already inside. So I set up my checkpoints, and every day I would have to make sure that the advisors are doing okay. And at the time, I have a friended, um, a couple intelligence officers, military intelligence officers from the U.S. military, who is job to be there 24 hours in the Iraqi MOD. And the reason why they were members of the Iraqi Operation Center, their job was to transfer information back to General Betrayas at the time. And the brief betray us about the situation of the Iraqi military. So these guys couldn't leave. They couldn't leave. Basically, um, they would have to switch shift and they have to be there 24 hours. And during that time, they had the Iraqi military, the government was getting divided based on the religious background and the political party background. And some of these terrorists didn't really have to hide. They just had to form some kind of political party and be part of the government and get some kind of position. So I, at the time, is standing in, in, in a, during the morning in the MOD, and all of a sudden we get a new minister of defense, and he was from the Ambar province, which is the Ramadi, Fallujah area, where the Marines were heavily engaged. Yeah. And he showed up with about 200 men as a security guard, members of his tribe. And all these individuals who have showed up with guns behind him as a PSD, as a personal security detail, just to remind you that the Iraqi MOD was fully protected by my soldiers, and there was no need to have a 200 men 
inside of the Iraqi MOD, just looking at the faces of these individuals at the time, they were all a military age from the Umbar province. Um, they look like villagers. They look like people who lives in the countryside, not in the city. And they all had a, they, most of them had a dark, dark spot in their forehead, which means they're religious and they pray a lot. And you look at the elbows of these individuals, also dark. You can see these guys have been using the gun a lot. And 99% of these people at the time were not in the allies to the Americans. This is where the Marines were heavily engaged. So we were wondering where these guys were coming from and what they were doing at the MOD and what they really up to. Um, so we're looking to really, um, we were not sure what these guys were doing and what they were up to, what they were doing. So we immediately took security measures um, to put some of my soldiers, you know, to put some of my soldiers into in charge of watching them and tracking them through the building and making sure that they are not making any wrong moves. And at the time, we were watching every step of, their, of theirs. And my biggest worry was these two American officers who were going to be working in the Iraqi Situation Room um, at the time, the whole building was covered with T-walls. Um, it was all covered up and secured. No cars could get inside the MOD or leave to the red zone. Everything was blocked. Um, so the building was really, really secured. Um, perhaps I was the first Iraqi to be sent to the anti-terrorism first protection school level two um, to make sure that I do my job right. And... I have secured the building where an ant can't even get out of it so, if they want to. I made sure that I blocked everything. Only pedestrian could leave the building to the red zone. Um, I didn't want any cars because we, I wanted to make sure that I'm able to see everything. Um, and they have a, brought a truck um, that is actually has a teeth in front of it, which means it's a truck that moved T-walls with two teeth in front of it that goes um, – to go under the tier walls and move it. And once I got information from my soldiers, there was a truck coming inside of the MOD from the green zone, which came through the green zone to go. And that's the only way to get a car into my um, building is you have to go through the green zone where you'd be searched by American soldiers. Um, and this is a very complicated thing because the security there was very high and the measures were taken very seriously. So, they have brought this truck, and once I got this information, I was nervous because I didn't know what this truck purpose was, why this truck, and they have parked it to the back of the building. And, and where it is, it's, a, it's a, where the riverside, which is the river was in the back of the building, and there was a road that right behind this T-wall that's actually blocked by my T-walls, concrete barriers, that is abandoned. But that, if you move my T-walls, uh, that road is unsecure. You can just get on it and drive and go straight to the red zone. Um, so we didn't know what they're up to. I have walked into the truck myself and I saw a driver in it. And I asked, what's the purpose of the truck and what are you doing here? They told me they were members of the Iraqi Minister of Defense Security Detail. And there was this individual who was in charge of them, who was named Sabah Delamy at the time, who looked very, very suspicious and was walking through the building, looking through cameras he walked through the whole entire building every day for an hour. He was looking for a way out, but we just weren't sure what he was looking for. And the driver answered me back and said, um, we're here to move furniture out of the minister's office. 
And just to let you know, the minister's office was completely furnished with a high quality furniture, which actually was a furniture that belonged to Saddam Hussein. So what exactly they were doing, we didn't know. We knew they were not moving any furniture and the whole place was fully furnished. The next thing we knew, we knew that if any target in this building was going to be targeted, it was going to be an American um, officer. And the reason why, because these 50 American advisors are not highly equipped soldiers. They come in every day. They're between the rank of a major to a football colonel. All they carry in their legs is a, is a nine millimeter. The nearest U.S. checkpoint is about two miles away. So they cross a wall coming into our building. But once you enter the Iraqi MOD, it's not a green zone anymore. It becomes an Iraqi MOD, almost like a red zone. Um, at the time, I have very, very limited time to move and get my soldiers alerted. So I immediately asked my soldiers to watch this truck and make sure that truck doesn't move. And I have ordered one of my towers, which was close to the truck, that if the truck moves towards anything that are not supposed to be moving towards, just shoot the driver and open fire. I didn't care what was going to happen at the time. I was in charge of this, and I wasn't going to watch anything happen. And this leader of this group had showed up at 11 o'clock at night that day with about 150 of his men without the minister. I mean, these guys are only purpose for them to be in the Ministry of Defense was to be with their minister to protect him. But when they show up at 11 o'clock at night without him, I immediately knew this was going to be into a very ugly firefight. And my job was to get in and get these two American officers out at all costs. Um, I had only about 12 of my soldiers who were already equipped for a fight like that. Every soldier I had was outside of the building. So I took my PSD team members, who were about 12 of them. We got equipped. And in the way, we were all nervous. We We were... We weren't sure we really were going to have a firefight or we're going to – we would just wanted to get these Americans before they get to them. Um, at the time, I had sent a couple of my soldiers to the second floor, and the Iraqi operations center was in the first floor. Uh, the reason I sent these two soldiers there because to clear the building to make sure exactly there are no other Americans other than these two. So I have immediately got there, and once I got to the to the gate where these two Americans are, I get a call on the radio to tell me there was another American officer who was sitting in the second floor. This American officer was not supposed to be there after 4 p.m. He was there at 11 o'clock at night. And what it seemed to be, he was an advisor for the Iraqi communication department. And he was um, just about five to six days in the country. And it seems like he was not briefed correctly. Uh, he saw there to use the Internet. And he was not supposed to be in the building like that because it wasn't even secure for me, for myself. So immediately, they have. we realized that they have located this officer who have repeated this activity for five, six days. And my soldiers had notified me as well that all the gates that were locked with chains and locked in the second building were actually broken. These gates actually takes them straight to where that truck was parked. So they were looking to pick up this American officer, put him in the back of a truck, and move the T-walls with that truck. Move the T-walls with the truck that has teeth in front of it. And once they move that T-wall, I will never be able to stop them. They will get on the road that goes straight to the red zone. And that was a mission impossible for me to block that hole, uh, except for the soldier that I had in the tower. 
Um, and with having 150 of them in the building, my soldier on the tower wasn't going to do much. I was very nervous. I ran into the building immediately while they were outside of the building getting ready to go upstairs. I have gone in there before they did. I told this officer I had a security threat in the building and he needed to follow me. I walked him down the aisle and have gotten him out of the building through the other side of the building. I told him to run to the nearest American checkpoint and never turn around, whatever happens. I immediately got back in and waited and we were talking with each other at the time and we said, if they open, if they fire one bullet, they were going to put their ministers in jeopardy. Their minister would never be able to be the minister of defense again. We knew they were doing this on the quiet side and they wanted to snap him and get out without anybody knowing anything. And this, if there was one location in the world for these guys to pick up an American officer from anywhere in the world, it would have to be this building because this was just the perfect place for them to do it. Um, where do you see an American major to Fulbright Colonel walk in without any security guards? It was just a nine millimeter in his leg. And that was just the right place, the right time. Once we walked back in, they got up and they immediately realized that something went wrong. We knew they were going to repeat this immediately. So General Petraeus have gotten their information at the time and have ordered all American advisors to stay out of the building completely for three days. So they had a travel ban on these American advisors for three days until they figure out what's going on. At the time, I was calling... Um, an American colonel at the time, Colonel Burke, who was in charge of these, are, was in charge of the advisors that were working in the Iraqi MOD and the operations center specifically. And once I notified him, the information went to General Betrayus and then a travel ban went put in hold. Immediately, I got a call from an intelligence officer who was involved at the time. His name is uh, Thaler. And he told me that members of the U.S. intelligence would be in touch with me immediately and they needed to meet with me um, at a secure location. Uh, I got a call from a lady who was an American um, intelligence member, and I have decided to meet with them immediately to brief them of what was happening in the building. I met with them in the green zone in a secure location, and there was this three civilian individuals, a female and two males, and they introduced themselves the female introduced herself as a member of OGA, stands for other government agency, and the male was a member of the DIA from the Defense Intelligence Agency. And the third member um, um, was uh, another member of OGA. And they have traveled from the Umbar province, which actually they were in the intelligence officers in charge in the Umbar province where these guys who are executing these operations are actually from. So the intelligence were shared in a very smart way. Um, and the reason why I think these guys showed up because there was no really any leads in the Umbar province. And the Umbar province at the time it was heavily engaged with the Marine Corps. And there wasn't really any uh, resources and people were evacuated in the cities at the time. And this was a huge leap for them. When they showed up, this became into a major intelligence operation against these guys. And I was surprised that they did not arrest them right away. And the reason why, because they needed to know who they really are, where they exactly come from in the Iraqi MOD. I was ordered by these individuals and offered to work with them, which I didn't understand what that meant at the time. So the female have sat on the table and said, do you want to work for us? And I didn't know what that meant. I was a member of the Iraqi military at the time. And I said, well, I'm a member of the Iraqi military. Um, I have a very difficult job every day in the daily basis. Um, what else can I do for you? 
Um, so at the time, I had a friended couple of these um, officers that worked in the Iraqi MOD, and I have gotten to know that one of them, his wife was a pregnant, he was expecting a baby back home, and she looked at me and said, you know, if you don't help us at this situation, your friend would never be back home to see his baby. He will immediately probably be killed. Um, at the time, I was an Iraqi soldier that I knew I was going to die one way or another. I didn't have a way out out of this. The one worst thing I could imagine is looking at this guy not going back home to see his child. Um, it, it touched me in my heart. And it was a situation whether I was going to die or someone that I care about was going to die. I knew I was going to die anyway. I agreed to work for that officer, for the intelligence officer who was talking to me. And I asked her, what can I do? What else? But agreeing to something like that, it would make me not just of a regular target. I'll become a high target. I can get my teammates killed at their homes while visiting their families. It was dangerous for me to be involved in intelligent operation. And I was terrified what the outcome of it was. I agreed and my first job was to go back into the Rocky MOD and get the information, full information, names of everything that I need to know about these individuals. And they had made a mistake at the time by going into the Iraqi personal department to make Iraqi MOD ID cards. And the reason why they needed this ID cards, these individuals, because once they were going to kidnap an American officers, by using these ID cards, their convoy or their trucks will never be searched by any Iraqi military checkpoints all the way down to the Ambar province. Which means once they pick this American up, these cars will never be stopped by any checkpoint. It will look like almost an Iraqi military um, convoy or Iraqi personal security detail convoy. And they carry the Iraqi Minister of Defense office ID cards. So their plan was done about 99% successful. The only problem they had is me watching every step of the way. The Americans wouldn't even known about any of this stuff. So I was put in a situation to get their information. I have went into the Iraqi personal department and I asked one of the employees to secretly pass me any information about them. So I ended up getting all their ID cards, their names, and they were stupid enough to use their real names and the real information and addresses. Once the information was matched by the U.S. intelligence, the leader who was leading them, whose name is Abad Delamy at the time, actually came back to be a major and a member of Al-Fidayin at Saddam time. Al-Fidayin, which was called Saddam suicide fighters. This, this individuals were not supposed to be near any American bases, near any um, U.S. military base. But the MOD was just the perfect place for him to be because he just happened to be in charge of the security details of the Minister of Defense. So this was just a huge step for them. And that operation was just like a touchdown, whether they were going to have it or someone else was going to. Um, so they figured it out until to hold the advisors until we have a secure plan, until we can get these advisors out. And having these advisors out of the building is actually a loss to the Iraqi military because once you pull these American advisors out, the process of building a new Iraqi military, it stops right in there. So you either put them back and you're risking their lives, either the process of building a new Iraqi military will immediately stop. Within three days, we have put a plan together to secure this thing. I have watched these individuals every day for about a week. We have placed a couple things on their cars, and we realized that they had a routine every three weeks to um, 
go home to the Ambar province on leave, which is on a vacation, after they spent three weeks working in the MOD. And after a week of watching them, they were switching shifts and they were going back to the Ambar province. And this was the opportunity the U.S. intelligence was waiting for. Um, they left within four days once I notified the U.S. intelligence of their um, information of the cars they were riding and everything else. Within four days, I have met with the intelligence agents and I have asked what happened to them. And I heard rumors from the Iraqis in the building that there were some kind of a special forces in the Ambar province have arrested this individual with the 25 members of his men in the Ambar province. This happened to come back to be a successful operation in the Ambar province against them. And only God knows how many Marines uh, were being taken on uh, a weekly basis by these guys. And, um, and, they, and this was 2004? 2005. Okay. So once these guys were gone, I didn't know what the next step for me. And then when I met with the U.S. intelligence agent at the time, um, she notified me that my job was going to be to clear the dust out of the picture and to identify every individual in this building that would that would be suspicious of working for a terrorist organization, whether it was the Mahdi militia at the time or Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State who was active at the time. And we had about good six to 7,000 employees that would come there every day. Uh, some of these Iraqi officers who would show up every day, they're not an everyday soldier like myself. They just show up from nine to five. They're staff officers show up from nine to five. And then there was something interesting about it that good Iraqi officers will leave the building and will get assassinated within a few minutes of leaving the building. Um, because they lived in a dangerous areas or people, the terrorists knew they were members of Iraqi military and assassinated them. Um, some individuals will leave every day while they live in a very dangerous situations and very dangerous places, but they were never assassinated. And this was made a huge question mark that why some of these individuals live in a very dangerous areas in Baghdad, go home every day. They don't have to wait until six o'clock. They leave at five uh, during the daylight while they're not worried about their life being taken. So it raised the question that were they members of Al-Qaeda? Were they double agents? Were they playing both sides? And at the time, we had this individual who was um, a member of the Iraqi military. He was an Iraqi colonel who came every day from 9 to 5. He worked at the Iraqi Operation Center, um, who was known to be calling the Americans occupiers at the time. Uh, some of us would call the Americans allies or... Um, but when you called Americans occupiers at the time, you're definitely were up to something. Um, he was known for his hatred to the American people. Um, we had him as number one in the list and he made the list. The reason he, why he made number one on the list, he lived literally in the same neighborhood next door to one of the most wanted terrorists in Baghdad, but he was never assassinated and he was never touched. He went home every day, no problem. And that's what really raised the question. And we were watching this individual every single day and reporting back to the U.S. intelligence to uh, let them know what her activity was. And the reason why, because he worked at the same room where about seven American advisors would be working. Um, and he had access to that room because he was a member of the Iraqi Operation Center. And we started watching him closely. And I get this information off from my soldiers who were watching him at the time, that he goes to smoke breaks every 15 minutes, literally. Uh, at the time, as the command sergeant major of the Iraqi MOD, I had made a rule 
where all Iraqis will smoke outside of the building. As you know, Iraqis would love to smoke anywhere they want. Um, they would have turned the building into a hookah bar in a way. Um, so I have ordered my guys to make sure that everybody have to smoke mandatory in the balcony. We have a huge balcony out there and everybody had to go out there and smoke. He would take smoke breaks every 15 minutes, but he was never seen at the balcony smoking. So we were very nervous about where was he was disappearing. I mean, the building was two floor building, a huge building, which used to be the Iraqi parliament building. And it's a very easy to disappear on the building. So we were very nervous about what was happening. Um, we realized that um, we were trying to figure out where he would disappear and when he would go. And we realized he would go back to the locker room where he changes on his uniform every day because he comes on civilian clothes every morning and changes to his uniform in the locker room. And he was disappearing every 15 minutes to go back to the locker room. Every 20, 25 minutes, he's back in the locker room. Um, so there was two options. Either he was smoking down there secretly and didn't want to go out to the balcony, which we didn't understand why, or he was doing something else. So immediately, once we notified the U.S. intelligence of these activity, we I was ordered that day. Once he leaves to go home, I had to go and break his locker to make sure his locker has nothing in it. Once I broke in the locker, I went there the night. He left to go home, and I got into the locker room. And um, thank God in Iraq, the, the locks are all made by the same company, and there was like three different sizes. And um, um, there was probably about like two colors. So we had a common thing where sometimes the keys in Iraq, the quality of the locks, will jam. So... What our plan was is to break the lock and put another lock in there once we search it and clear it. And he would think that the key has jammed. But we have put the same size lock once we search it and finish it. So when I got there with a the lock cutter, I have kept the lock and I was not expecting to see anything. I was expecting just to search and make sure there's nothing really in there and walk away. So I went there and I once I opened the locker, there was this... You know, just to remind you, there was other Iraqi uh, military officers who were there on the duty during the night, so I couldn't be seen. I had to do this really fast. But when I got there, I have opened the lock, and I see his uniform. I checked the pockets, and there was really dark behind the uniform. You couldn't see really in that room. It wasn't that big of a room. And I was moving at a fast pace. I was nervous. Um, my heart was beating, and I was just nervous about what I'm doing. I immediately looked. There was a bag behind the behind the uniform. And when I touched the bag, it seems like it was something in it. I didn't know what it was in it. So I pulled the bag immediately out of the locker and I opened it. Um, and at the time, you would realize that I was lucky that this didn't get me killed that day. I moved the bag and I opened it. Um, once I opened it, I looked inside of the bag. Uh, there was a built of su uh, there was a suicide belt with C4 in it. And that moment, my heart was just stopped immediately. Uh, this was a build that was about 75% built and done inside of the MOD. And the first thing I wanted to ask myself was, how did they really get this amount of C4 into my building? I had pedestrian search. I searched these people every single day. I have done everything possible to protect the building, but how they were doing it. And inside of the back, there was a huge amount of cigarettes that was smashed inside with tobacco inside of it. Um, in the middle of the back. And what it, it seemed to happen that they were getting, th getting these amount in a ci uh, cigarettes boxes every single day. 
my soldiers would every day ask him to open that box that has just a bunch of cigarettes in it. And it was a brand at the time. It's called Rothman. And they open it. It just looked like a bunch of cigarettes. However, they were getting small amounts of it every day inside an MOD. And they probably spent about six months building that thing inside the MOD. We just didn't know that was happening at the time. And at the time, once I made the phone call to the agent, I have notified her that I have a suicide belt. And next wall to me, there is about seven American advisors doing their jobs. And I had to hit the emergency button and immediately evacuate the building of all Iraqis and Americans. I hit the emergency button immediately and I walked them out. And the agents at the time have sent an EOD team to meet me outside with the back, um, an explosive specialist to pick it up. Once the emergency button was hit, every Iraqi officer have seen me in that location and knew that I was not supposed to be there. Um, at the time, um, I walked out of the building and phone calls were made. Um, at the time, I was pretty much exposed to these individuals that this was the American spy that was following these operations in the Iraqi MOD. Um, this had put me, not just myself in danger, even my, my team, uh, the suicide belt was stopped and taken care of. Um, this individual immediately received a call who was putting the suicide belt together and he was out of his house. We had sent a team to arrest him, but he was gone and there was nothing seen out of him. At the time I became nothing but a target. Uh, I was ordered to, to leave by the U.S. intelligence to leave the building and not to stay there anymore because I would be a high target. Now they knew what I was doing. At the time, terrorist organization was very angry that their plots were foiled. And it were foiled just by a, a 20 years old sergeant major in the Iraqi military. This was a big deal for them. And they couldn't get to me. I never went home. Uh, in order for them to get to me, they would have to come through all my soldiers and then my team members. Unfortunately... A team member of mine went to go see his family. We were being watched 24 hours by them from inside of the building. And once he left to go see his kids, he hadn't seen them in six months. He was assassinated 14 minutes once he left the building. Wow. Um, I knew down the road we were going to pay the price. I knew me agreeing to do this kind of job was going to cost me a lot. Not just my life, maybe the life of others, but... Once my teammate got assassinated, within um, two weeks, another member of my team got assassinated as well, going to see his home. We had to literally had a lockdown and never go home, change our sleeping location. We were hopeless at the time. But I could be here all day, but you'll find more information about in the book about how things went. Um, things continue to be hard and struggles just continue to go so from there. And... Losing my team members, it just put me in a hopeless situation. And um, I didn't know what to do any time. At the time, I was ordered to leave, but I didn't want to leave. My job was to protect my team members in the building. And I knew I was going to die somehow, but I didn't want to just die alone. I wanted to be dying in the battle. And if I was going to die, I was going to die in uniform. And it's, you know, you say that, and that's actually um, quite a really poignant point because it's almost... Um, a, a, a different sort of scenario, but when when guys die on the battlefield, especially you know, especially warriors that sort of belong on the battlefield, it almost feels like they've been cheated when they don't when they die another way. You know, a friend of mine was um, he survived like Helmand Province and then was killed in a motorcycle accident. It just seemed really pointless, you know. And I and I get that with um, 
with soldiers that they if if they do if they if they have to go they would prefer to die fighting you know exactly especially if you um, fall into the enemy hands while going home i never went home yeah that's not i mean and, and that's the thing with you guys that was a ter- yeah. at that time in iraq you had you know you had killing squads you had guys yeah, on all so- sides you know there was some like the guys posing as um taking blood come and give blood for your you know i think it was, I, was that, that sunni um who which since, one was that since the day of hyper street battle i always kept a bullet in my pocket and that bullet was going to go into my head once i ran out of ammo i never wanted to be beheaded on national tv or no, a, um, and, and you know this is how they put fear in people's hearts is by the way killing people by putting this online by scaring people and I never wanted to be that example. I don't want to be handed myself that easy. I stayed in uniform and I was in an armored Humvee. And if they wanted to come, they're going to have to fight to come get me. And this is really what made it difficult. You'll find more information on the book about that. But this is really what made it difficult for them to kill me. Terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State never let anybody stays alive who has caused them damage or cost them their operations that were being planned to, to work for them. But the only difficult thing this we were not used to is I was a member in uniform and there was about a thousand people before they can get to me. So this is really was just a punch to the face to them because I was not easy to kill. And what what's the name of your book for the audience who would be interested in uh, checking it out? The Terrorist Whisperer. You can order it through www.theterroristwhisperer.com. It's called The Terrorist Whisperer. Okay, and is that available on Amazon as well or just on your website? Absolutely, no. It's available on Amazon. It's available all over the world. They can order it from anywhere. Okay, awesome. So after you know you spending several years in Iraq, uh, you eventually came over to the United States. Can we talk about the transition process a little bit? You know, I was shot in 2007, and once I was injured, they have gotten to me and injured me, and I was... Where were you, where were you shot? Uh, where in my leg. I was you know, it's in the, where were you? What area were you? I was in Baghdad. Oh, yeah. Um, specifically, and, like, yeah, you were just around... Yeah. yeah, so I was in Baghdad, and I was uh, near an area about southeast of Baghdad, and I ended up inju- getting injured, and... Once I went, got out of the military hospital, I was shipped to the United States. Um, I came to the U.S. in 2008. I had had a had a very very long transition, and it was very hard for me because here I am getting out of the fight, and all of a sudden I arrived in the U.S. And when I arrived here, it was just a peaceful moment to come out of this, to arrive at a peaceful place. There was nothing going on. There was no war. You know, my body have left physically to fight, but your brain, your heart would never be out of the fight. Um, definitely, you know, looked at myself that day and said, you know, uh, I really meant to be here. And... Um, you know, part of me wanted to go back and, and, and keep doing what I was doing. And part of me said, you know what, this is it. You're done your part. And if you go back, you're going to cost your teams more damage and more people are going to get hurt. Um, 
when I got here, it was not easy. You know, it was not easy as um, coming here, starting a new page, a new life, and everything was new for you, and you didn't have any friends or family, and you know, except for the military friends that you had. Um, and it was difficult. It was not easy. I, um, I know life moved on. I got married. I have a child today. And, you know, it was just, uh, you know, I'm happy today that every Christmas I get to call the American officers that I saved in the MOD and every, um, holiday. And now they're like members of my family. They consider me members of their family as well. Um, I think it means a lot when you come to the United States, knowing that you are able to save some people and bring them back to their families, looking into their families, knowing who their families were. That was uh, the accomplishment that I felt when I came here, um, knowing that they had children and they had people that cared about them and knowing the part that I was able to assist to bring them back home alive. Uh, that meant the world to me. Yeah, that's, yeah, awesome. that's pretty. Do you, do you have um, do you have family still in Iraq or? I they... some of my family members are still in Iraq. Um, unfortunately, they... I can't I can't disclose where they are. No, uh, no, no, for sure. They they're still in Iraq. Some uh, some you know not in Iraq anymore. Have left the country. Yeah. Um, as you know, the name on the book is not my real name. It's actually just a, a something for security, uh, for. But, you know, just to protect my identity, you know, right. and um, that's um, I haven't seen some of my family members in years. Like, and that, that's what when John says about the transition, that's tough. You know, you've you, you, you know, not only sacrificed, that's a big sacrifice and a, and to and make. A, you know, agreeing to do that job for the U.S. intelligence years ago, 10 years ago, um, I knew it was going to cost a lot. I know the sacrifices will continue. And if I went near my family at the time, they would have gotten them killed. They were looking for anything that related to me to go after if they couldn't touch me. And, um, they, and they, they were relentless, these teams that were doing what you're, what you're talking about. They, you know, I, I've, I've looked a lot into it and then done a lot of research on it. And they were, they were just like systematically gunning people down. Yeah. So pretty this, much it's just I was... I knew this was going to cost something. I never went near my family. Perhaps 15 years later, I don't have any relationship with some of my family members. I never near them. I don't want to cost them any harm, you know? Uh, yeah. It was enough watching my team members dying. And I knew it was going to cost a lot down the road. I knew it was just going to continue. And this is a bloodbath. And someone is going to have to win. I didn't want to get anybody hurt. And... Uh, I accepted you, the lie. How do you feel now, um, you know, with the situation in Iraq today? You know, how do you... I'm actually very, very, very proud of the new Iraqi generation because the old generation that grew up under Saddam Hussein was learned to be afraid, learned not to uh, fight back, uh, learned the, the things that I couldn't do as a kid. But I look at the new Iraqi generation and the Iraqi forces today and how they stood up to ISIS and how they were able to take 30% of their country back from ISIS with the very limited capabilities they have. I'm actually very proud. And it made made me feel that the fight I was fighting in Iraq at the time was worth it. Uh, it was worth it for me to fight with 150 Iraqi soldiers today. There's a probably near a million Iraqi soldiers fighting in the battle. So it took a generation to give up, to get to where we got. 
Yeah, because and you say that you know I'd worked with a lot of Iraqis and their families, and and I thought they they were such good people, and they and they actually you know the one thing that they all just wanted to just to be happy, they just wanted to live a normal safe Absolutely. life and have, have their kids go to school. Absolutely, be, be normal. You know, have a normal. Absolutely, go to you know, the, the shops, average. You know, the average Iraqi citizen just wanted to live a happy life. Yeah, and yeah. and you know, fortunately these these radicals and 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 they just wanted to take your freedom away. They just wanted to control your life. And some people had to obey because they're afraid. But people like myself, I just didn't want to live that way anymore. I wanted to change, and. Change wasn't going to come easy. It was going to come with the blood. And, the, and the, as, hor- as hard as it, or as horrible as that is, that, that is a fact, isn't it? It doesn't just come. And this is through, you know, the generations of many countries that no one starts off as a as the perfect sort of finish. You know, that you go through all these different sorts of trials and tribulations. And I'm sure that we'll all, you know, continue to go through that in the in the years to come. You know, there's always something going on. It's always, um, unfortunately, this was the reality of Iraq back then. And when we're talking about these years, these are the years of the surge. These are the worst, you know, times of the year. And 2004, 2000 and 2004 and 2005, 2006, until, you know, 2007, these were the surge years. Al-Qaeda at the time, this was their peak time. And either they were going to take this country, either they were going to take it. And, you know, I was proud of the generation that I was part of. And I was a pride that, proud of every Iraqi soldier that fought by, beside my, side by side with me because we were fighting for the next generation to be able to do what we couldn't do. Right, yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting because... You see these groups, uh, you know, like ISIS, and um, at one point they were kind of under the umbrella of Al Qaeda, and then at some point they had like a, a huge difference in their um, the way they were pursuing their fight, and they and they kind of separated. But you know, I think we all know eventually, and I think it's coming to a, a head, at least in Iraq, that uh, ISIS is pretty much done there, and then the question becomes. Once ISIS is defeated, what group is going to try and step up and, and uh, you know, be the next uh, movement for the kind of radical uh, world, you know? Absolutely. You know, the, the, these, you know, one thing that I would like to mention that the, the radical fighters that you're fighting right now, who is ISIS, you know, away from the foreign fighters who are part of them, these are the same individuals we put away in 2005. 2006 during the surge these are the same individuals we put behind bars unfortunately when we pulled the troops out of iraq these guys escaped out of prison 45 days after your soldiers pulled out of iraq these guys escaped out of prison among the four leaders that are leading isis right now under abu Bakr al-baghdadi so there was no more evidence than this so fortunately president obama was convinced by his unqualified advisors that to pull out of Iraq and give things to the Iraqis. I knew as an Iraqi soldier and and as a higher position in the Iraqi military at the time that the Iraqi government and its military and its police were not ready 
to handle that kind of responsibility. So if they if they have pulled, you know, it's almost like you were handing a house with no roof to to the Iraqis. And there are so many projects that were supposed to take 10 to 20 years end up stopping and handing them back to the Iraqis. And, you know, these guys end up escaping the prisons not not long after 45 days or everybody was out. Right, right. And it's, you know, it's unfortunate. But, you know, leaving, pulling out when we did, all it really did was set up for a couple of years later now for us to have to go back in there, you know. So, um, you know, but I guess... You know, that's the way things work, you know. Um, certain actions are taken, and then a few years later, if if it was the right action, it's fine. If it wasn't, we have to go back and try and fix it, you know. But um, so, Hamodi, I just want to thank you for uh, taking out the time to come on the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I, I encourage all the audience to check out your book. Uh, what I'll do on, on my website when the podcast episode goes live is I'll put the links up there. So anyone listening, if they want to check it out, they can uh, check it out. Yeah. I'm looking forward to reading it. And then I'm going to, I'm going to message you if that's okay. Once I've read it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, people have ordered it from all over, but if uh, anybody wants it autographed, you just have to order it from the website, the terrorist Awesome. All right. Thanks brother. Brilliant. Thank right. you. Thank you guys. Good to be with you guys. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. You too. Incredible stories from Hamity. You know, it kind of reflects what the the battlefield was like and the kind of chaos that uh, Western militaries and the new Iraqi military was facing and the challenges that were before them during the highly Iraq war with the insurgency going on and them trying their best to stabilize the country while on the other side, the terrorist groups were trying their hardest to destabilize the country. And any victory that was won there was won in blood. And, you know, a lot of people lost their lives there, a lot of good people. And men like Hamity put everything on the line to serve his country and what he thought was the right thing to do. And, you know, I highly uh, applaud his efforts. You know, it's it's interesting always in my opinion to hear from people who've been to war but to hear from someone who is from the the home country where this war is being fought and someone who fought and you know lost his friends and was injured and that kind of thing is really incredible so with that being said now we'll close out this episode uh like i said you can check out the global recon articles www.globalrecon.net slash articles. When you get to the homepage, there will be a pop-up there that you can sign up for the mailing list. Be sure to do that. Uh, We'll give you weekly updates. And like I said earlier, we have some products and programs that are being worked on and they'll be released soon. And the programs are related to being fit and getting into shape physically and mentally to pass a special operations selection wherever it at wherever it is you're at in the world. And um uh Hamity, the command sergeant major, has a book out. I I haven't had the chance to read it. Um 
it's called the terrorist whisper the story of the pro-american if you want to check that out you can go to the www.theterroristwhisper.com uh, if you would like an autographed copy you can purchase it there and uh, they'll ship it out to you it's also available on amazon.com and, and other places that books are sold but if you would like an autographed copy you can order it from there my website is www.globalrecon.net. My Instagram account is igrecon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. Uh, my friend Chantel Taylor is on Facebook at Battleworn, the memoirs of a combat medic. Her Instagram account is mission underscore critical. At times, I post on that account as well. Uh, Chantel is also an author of a book. It's called Battleworn, the memoirs of a combat medic in Afghanistan. An excellent book. I encourage you guys to read that and check it out. It's available anywhere books are sold. Um, my Twitter account is IG Recon. My LinkedIn account is Global Recon. You know, I we do this every single week, and I enjoy doing it. It's a lot of work. And, you know, I would encourage you guys to subscribe, download, share these episodes with your friends and family. It helps keep us at the top of the iTunes uh, government and national categories, and it's also motivating, you know, and, and it it tells us that we're doing a good enough job that you would want to check us out every week, and, and that way it helps push us to continue to work hard. So, you know, we appreciate everything. I appreciate the audience and uh, everyone who follows on social media and that kind of thing, and we'll catch you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace. Peace.